Hello, fellow foodies. The word gene bank may sound like something out of a sci-fi movie, but actually gene banks are really important in the real world. Gene banks are a type of biological repository or a bank where genetic material is stored. When it comes to crops, gene banks hold the future of food, and this can include everything from seeds to plant cuttings and more. On this week's show, I have a very special guest here to teach us more about these unique resources. Dr. Ren Wang is the Director General of the China National Gene Bank, based in Shenzhen, China. Dr. Wang obtained his PhD in entomology in 1985 at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University in Blacksburg, Virginia. Since then, he has served on some really important roles when it comes to securing the future of our food. Dr. Wang served as the Deputy Director General for Research at the International Rice Research Institute based in the Philippines. And then in 2007, he became the director of the Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research, or CGIAR, based at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. He then served as assistant director general of FAO's Agriculture and Consumer Protection Department based in Rome, Italy. So he has a lot of relevant experience to share with us. Dr. Wang has worked on global efforts concerning crop security all over the world for several decades, and I'm super excited to have him on the show. So welcome, um, Ren. It's so great to see you. Thank you very much. And it's uh, really an honor and pleasure to be here today. Well, thanks. Well, to get started, maybe we can just begin with a, a general description of what is a gene bank and, and why is it so important to our food? Okay, well... Uh, you uh, thank you for the nice introduction of my current job, which uh, I serve as the Director General of the China National Gene Bank. Now, this is not the, well, the first one or the only one of a gene bank in China. Let me begin by a little bit of a history that, uh, to my knowledge, the first actually the gene bank for agricultural crops was established in the Philippines in the 1960s. Actually, it was the International Rice Research Institute, which I served for more than seven years. It was the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, established the ERI, the International Rice Research Institute, in 1960. And uh, the, one of the uh, goals, or let's say missions, of ERI was to start right away of collecting and conserving rice germplasm, as we see, the rice varieties and genetic materials from all, all over the world. So that actually was the beginning of, at that time, called International Rice Germplasm Collection or International Rice Collection. So <clears throat> that was not a gene bank yet, huh. but that was really the prototype of the first international crop gene bank. And as the success of the so-called, let's say, green revolution as uh, Erie works along, uh, <clears throat> the model of Erie was uh, copied uh, in Simit, as we know today, uh, in, the, in, in Mexico, the International mm -hmm. Center for the Improvement of Wheat and Maize, uh, the Simit. Mm -hmm. and, and then, of course, uh, as part of the model, there was a gene bank of maize and wheat and uh, as the center developed, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation 
established a total of four such centers, including four gene banks, one in Philippines, the URI, and one in Mexico, CIMIT, and one in Colombia, CIAD, the International Center for Tropical Agriculture, and one in uh, Nigeria, the IITA, the International Institute of Tropical Agriculture. And then, of course, uh, as this, uh, let's say, the success of uh, those four centers in the 1960s, and then there were more centers developed. And in the end, by, let's say, uh, early 1980s, there were a total of 11 such international crop germplasm collections or gene banks established. See? Then the first crop gene bank in China was established in 1983. And again, it was uh, a collaboration between the Chinese government and the Rockefeller Foundation. Hmm. So actually myself was supposed to be trained as a, a storage pest manager for that gene bank established in 1983. Of wow. course, I ended up not being a <laughs> storage pest manager <laughs> in a gene bank. I, then I learned the biological pest control in Virginia Tech. And uh, so that was a, a little bit of a story. But see, that was 1983 for China, was still quite a visionary undertaking to establish the first national gene bank of crops. And that gene bank served the function of collecting and conserving, of course, all food or let's say crop, agriculture crop seeds or varieties. And then the capacity of that gene bank built in 1983 was 400,000 accessions, as we wow. say. Now that, of course, that gene bank serving a huge agriculture country like China was not enough. So by, let's say, uh, end of uh, last century, that gene bank was filled already. So wow. there were more than 400, 430,000 accessions of various crops. Now, that China gene bank established in Beijing with the help of the Rockefeller Foundation, had a feature of uh, more than 70% of its accessions were actually collected from within China. Mm -hmm. so a lot of land races, native, let's say, crops and varieties from China. Unlike, let's say, the USDA crop gene bank, which has a, a larger proportion of imported, let's say, uh, around the world, right? For, uh, collected from around the world. Yeah. And uh, so that, let me just uh, quickly say that the, as the China National Gene Bank, well, let's say crop gene bank was filled, and then last year, China actually began to build the extension of that crop gene bank with a capacity of one and a half million accessions. Again, wow. that's going to be built in Beijing. Hmm. Now that's the second, let's say, uh, a, a, let's say a plant gene bank was built in Kunming of Yunnan province, which is in southwest of China by the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Actually, the Institute of Botany in Kunming. Okay, so that gene bank focuses on collections of wild plants. So not mm. agricultural crops, but wild plants and fo like forests and, uh, and other plants. 
Are these wild crop relatives or are they? No, it was a completely not focusing on agricultural mm. crops. It was uh, trees, okay. uh, you know, mm. weeds and other things, wild plants. That's great. So that's the second one. Then uh, in, in, let's say in 2011, the concept of a, an integrated gene bank was proposed by the BGI group, the Beijing Genomics Institute, and then approved by the Chinese government. In 2016, the China National Gene Bank in Shenzhen, which I'm heading and working now, was established. So as you can see, this is a trail of a 1960s in the International Rice Research Institute and also the international centers, but then sort of a early 1980s, crop gene bank in China was built. Then in this century, a few, let's say about three or four years ago, this integrated gene bank was built. That's great. What do I mean by integrated gene bank? Okay, so this gene bank is different from the, bank, the gene bank in Iri, in Simit, and other, let's say Beijing. This China National Gene Bank collects and conserves or preserves all life materials. In other words, human, like blood, cells, and ah. yes, and uh, uh, yeah, nucleic acids, microorganisms, uh, insects, uh, wild plants, wild animals, even tissues of wild oh, animals wow. and crops. So this is the integrated. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, this is a, a more sort of a modern uh, gene bank. It has gone a quite a significant one step beyond just the cold storage of seeds. It features digitalization of the crop seeds and let's say other collections like human medical samples and so on. So every sample we collect, we try to do the genome sequencing. Oh, so wow. it holds not only the live materials, but also we have built perhaps one of the biggest databases in China hmm. on sequences of, of, of our biological samples. That's so great. this is really a step uh, much more different from uh, the traditional, let's say, gene banks. That's great. Well, yeah. one, one question I'm sure that many in the audience might have is, why is one variety of a crop not enough? Why do we need to have thousands of, of, of accessions for something that most people think is simple, maybe rice? So what's so special about rice? Why do we need so many um, uh, different accessions or different uh, land races or varieties to be stored? Why is that important? Well, uh, I think uh, perhaps we can look at this uh, from uh, different angles. First of all, as we, let's say, agricultural scientists or plant breeders develop new varieties, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the plant breeders chooses the best, let's say, uh, material that they can get, uh, be it, uh, you know, with the big ears or, or let's say, uh, a better yield uh, or drought tolerant. You know, they collect mm -hmm. such materials from different environments and cross them, right? And then to get offsprings. Off, offsprings and they, they select, right, from offsprings, hopefully, the best performing 
uh, yeah. plants, yeah, with a higher yield and drought tolerant, let's say, and the mm -hmm. better taste, all of those traits. So in other words, the plant breeders needs to select from a wider genetic pool, as we say, mm -hmm. the wider the, the, the diversity of the material, the more choices, the more, let's say, traits, better performing traits, the plant breeders might get, you might find. So this That's is what great. we say, phenotyping. We, we select these uh, different, let's say, uh, there's a technical term called segregation. Okay, when you cross two lines of rice, let's say one line from uh, Thailand, uh, and uh, which mm -hmm. has a, a, fe a feature of uh, a good, let's say, smell, okay, uh, mm -hmm. good taste. And another line from uh, Yunnan province of China. Uh, both are one kind of a subspecies of rice, but with different traits, okay? So you hopefully select from such two different places. However, there might be a disease which you mm. appears in Yunnan and other provinces of China, but not in Thailand. So your offspring may not be resistant to that particular disease. That's so great. breeders might have to get another line from, let's say, another a faraway province, maybe, from a, a local rice variety from that different province, which has a high pressure of that disease, you see? So that yeah. they might use a, a line with resistance. So, so in other words, the broader the genetic, genetic pool, the better off or better chances you have to select the right trait that you want. That's great. So this is why you need really to have a, a collection of uh, you know, as, uh, as much as possible and as a wide and diversified distribution mm. of these uh, rice lines. So that's one aspect, okay, mm -hmm. to have your genetic. Another important feature is that, okay, we, we store these, we collect and, and store these uh, rice lines to be prepared for the future. Mm -hmm. Because in the future, let's say, suppose that there are plant breeders, okay, 100 years from today, right? They will need to try to develop rice varieties that suit the taste and also the environment of 100 years from today. Wow. But we, don't, we simply don't know, right? What the yeah. future people like and do they like the rice quality as we like them today? Or what the environment so, is like also with, with climate change. Mm -hmm. And also pests and diseases, right? Mm -hmm. You might have a, a all completely different virus and attacking a, a, a rice, right? Mm -hmm. Just like this COVID-19 came, you know, coming up from nowhere. So we have this stored variety so that in the future, the future plant breeders can use these lines, which may already have those genes in them. Mm -hmm. right? To be resistant to a future disease, for instance. That's so great. That's, yeah. Now, today, as the sequencing technology develops, as the digitalization of these genetic materials, which makes it even more important in that if we have the seeds, as well as the sequencing information, we know that the genome of these mm -hmm. rice lines so that we can, in the future, today or in the future, we can be more precise mm. in developing the rice varieties we need. So that 
Another important thing is the, of this digitalizing capacity is that today we are able to be more precise by, let's say, selecting uh, segregations or variations of these sequences more accurately by resequencing these rice varieties. Mm. i just give you an example. The International Rice Research Institute collaborated with the Chinese Academy of Agricultural Sciences and the BGI, Beijing Genomics Institute, and started a quite important initiative, which was actually financially supported by the Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, mm -hmm. as well as the Chinese government. In They got 2,500 different accessions, let's say collections of these rice from Erie, mm -hmm. from Philippines, mm -hmm. and 600 or so accessions or rice lines from China. As you can see, this has a, a distribution from all over the world, right? This genetic mm -hmm. pool was very broad. And then since the rice genome was already sequenced in 2002, okay? So in 2010, these collaborating institutes started this is what we call resequencing the rice genome. So they sequenced all these 3000 plus rice lines, rice varieties from different parts of the world. And you guess what? They found some 29 million SNPs, okay? So what's, a, is, what's a SNP? Well, Just this is a, a, a single polymorphic, you know, single nucleotide polymorphism. So this is a variation. So in other words, mm -hmm. genetic variations, more than 29 million of them. Wow. So scientists have been, you know, around the world have been using this information, this material to analyze these 29 million or so variations of their genetic sequences. Mm -hmm. So as you can see, there's a much rich genetic diversity and a very rich gene pool, as we say, that they can, they can choose, they can analyze. Okay. That's great. So this is a, you know, the importance of, a, of genetic collections. Yeah. Well, and I think of some of the challenges we face today, some of our major crops and people may not be as, as familiar with these stories yet, but we have uh, plant pathogens attacking bananas, coffee, olive trees, citrus, um, grapes. There are a lot of our, of our major crops that are under threat due to pathogens. And this kind of research is, is what will ultimately, I think, come to the rescue. Um, to mm -hmm. save those crops or, or come up with better lines of crops, as you've explained. Yes, uh, and, and actually you just highlighted another importance of uh, uh, the international collaboration also, right? Mm -hmm. We cover different crops and also we try to figure out, let's say cocoa or coffee trees, right? Coffee, I mean, <clears throat> of course, uh, plant breeders want to develop coffee varieties which are highly resistant to the pests and diseases. So mm -hmm. today, you know, we try to understand these pests, insect pests or diseases, be it a fungal or bacterial diseases, right? And with that, the other side is that we try to understand the host plant, so coffee plant, 
whether or not the coffee plant has the resistance. So today, we now have a much more powerful tool than let's say 10, 20 years ago, which is genome sequencing. Mm -hmm. So now coming back to what I was uh, sort of uh, advocating the power of today's genomics uh, research. Now, speaking of that, I think, okay, digitalizing materials is, is important. But more importantly, or fundamentally, is that we do have to have such materials, right? Yeah. <laughs> Without such materials, you know, we can't even start. So that is why I want to emphasize again the critical importance, critical importance of the international agriculture research centers. Mm -hmm. So the 11 gene banks, right, maintained by these international agriculture research centers. And uh, I had the honor of serving for a bit over three years as the head of the system, what we call the consultative group on international agriculture. And of course, there are 15 centers, international centers in the CGIAR group, you know, the international, the consultative group, but the 11 of those 15 centers has the uh, mission and the responsibility of maintaining these gene banks of various crops. They, each center has their mandate crops. That's great. So that really is the treasure of mankind. I like, it really is. Um, yeah. it, it's our future for our food. I, yes. I mean, of, of the areas of science, you know, across, across medicine and food. I mean, yeah. securing our food is, has got to be a priority, um, for the future That's of right. mankind. Yeah. Well, yes. I was wondering if you could also walk us through the path of a seed as it, as it goes into the collection. Um, what types of scientific tools are used as you as you collect, deposit? Are they are they uh, periodically checked for viability, or what happens yes. in in the in the general workflow of a, of a gene bank? Uh, well, uh, that these international centers, as I mentioned, have already worked out a standard procedure mm -hmm. of collecting uh these seeds of course uh, when a seed let's say using rice which is common mm -hmm. and well known as an example right uh rice varieties were either collected by scientists or donated let's say submitted by a national program or a researcher to the gene banks mm -hmm. so the first thing is that we have to make sure that these seeds are viable are in good health good condition mm -hmm. so there's a seed health unit checks the quality of these seeds. So that includes the appearance, also the German, you know, germination percentage, mm -hmm. you know, how well, how, how healthy, how strong these seeds are before they can be stored. And then the seeds will be dried to a certain extent, usually with uh, less than, let's say 10% of the humidity. So it's quite dry. And then the seeds, dried seeds will be put into uh, containers. Uh, nowadays, we use, depending on the size of the seeds, so like aluminum packages uh, or glass jars or so on, and then put these containers with seeds into the right temperature. Now, there are typically in the traditional gene banks, 
there are three temperature regimes for crops. Okay, one is, uh, let's say, four degrees Celsius above zero. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that is usually what we call a working storage. So in other words, this you can take out for research for regermination purposes and so on. Okay, and then there's another, the second temperature is usually um, <clears throat> minus, so four degrees Celsius below zero. That is what we call a medium term storage that you can keep for 10 to 15 years, again, depending on the crop. And then there's uh, the third temperature is uh, 18 degrees Celsius below zero. And that is for long-term storage under which we put the seeds for 50 or 100 years. Wow. But of course, yes, they can maintain uh, viable, still alive uh, for that long under that low temperature. Now, of course, all of these under the different temperature regimes that we as scientists have to check the germination or let's say the uh, viability of these seeds periodically every 20 years or 50 years, depending on the crop again. Mm -hmm. So that, and then another very important aspect of course is uh, application, right? Is the use of these seeds. Mm -hmm. So there's the access to these materials and of course the exchange and so on. So that actually, take us to another topic, which is critically important. That is, there's the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. Hmm. So that international treaty is under uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, which coordinates with the member countries to set these standards or a code of conduct for access and exchange benefit sharing, you know, relating to these seeds, to the use of such materials, such seeds. Say, for instance, if a, a plant breeder in India wants to get hold of a rice variety coming from California, for instance, mm -hmm. so they would make a request to the gene bank based on the plant treaty, based on the rules, okay, they have to fill out a um, standard uh, material transfer agreement and has to agree on the terms of of conditions of such a, such access. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that is another important aspect. That's great. No, I I think really the 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 ethos of international collaboration is so important, especially when yes. you think about crops. It's it's so critical to ensure that we have the best options available to feed the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, also, I think it's important to emphasize uh, really uh, how critically important is the public goods. Yes, you know, the nature of, of these uh, crop collections are right. And that's really brings us perhaps to the topic that uh, makes me very excited, which is this initiative uh, of a uh, the periodic table of a food initiative yes. uh, proposed by the Rockefeller Foundation and hailed by the international science community already. And as I see it, you know, this is a, a great initiative, strategically important, uh, that emphasizes now, you know, try to understand the fundamentals of, of a food. 
and, yeah. and this initiative decided to choose the first batch of 1,000 food. So it's not just the raw material. Let's say it's not just rice or wheat, but food. Meaning, the food could be something of a you know a mix, for instance, yes. right? Like a, like yogurt, which has different things in it. And uh, but still, after all, it is the material, right? Starting from gene banks, starting from these genetic collections, we need to understand to the compound level, right? The yeah. information about these food and then put them into a public database. that not only the current generation, but the generations to come can have access to such information, can make use. This is just so exciting. I, I think I this is going to, yeah, you know, this is going to lead us to the singularity of a new era. This is a really uh, yeah. <laughs> the future. No, I, I, I share the same excitement. I think we're at, we're at this moment in time where people are going to look back in history and say, ah, oh, this is when it started, this, this whole initiative. Yeah. I think most people might be surprised to find that within a single plant tissue, you have hundreds mm -hmm. or thousands of distinct molecular entities. And so exactly. when you have uh, these different food ingredients, the spice, the, the rice, the other flavors that are added together, yeah. you really have this amazing chemical milieu that's, right. that's uh, and we really don't understand what the nutritional benefits, how is this, how, all these different elements, how it comes into form flavor and experience and also yeah. nutrition for our bodies. It's, it's really right. exciting to dig into yeah. this. And I think the, the, another excitement is uh, the tools and the methodologies that we have today. Mm -hmm. which really has uh, empowered scientific scientists to uh, really understand at a, a much greater granularity of these compounds and these food or, or crops. So I see this trend of, a, you know, a very powerful high throughput genetic analysis, we call it the genotyping, as well as uh, analysis of the performance of these crops of our varieties uh, stored in the in our gene banks nowadays we can have a much more powerful and how high throughput tools really to study them that's great and then so this is uh, really exciting that's great well i guess one last question i have is for any of the um, any of the members of the audience that are perhaps students or are interested in entering a career in the workforce dedicated to crops and crop security or agriculture in general do you have any advice of areas of study that, that people could go into that would be relevant for the future of, of food studies? Well, I, I can, well, this is my personal view, right? I, I think really there's a great need for uh, scientists of linking this, uh, let's say, uh, at, a, at a DNA level, the molecular or DNA scientists mm -hmm. who are studying genomics and so on, and the greater ecology. So as we say, molecular scientists, we have uh, more and more, really, mm -hmm. but organismal scientists, we are actually lacking. Really, scientists who understand the ecology, mm. who understand the environment, and yet can link that with the molecules of, of you know, living organisms. So I call it, this is kind of a cross-linking 
okay, what do we call omics? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not only genomics, but also ecology. Uh, this is uh, what we need. So I, I would encourage, I would really hope that there are young scientists, young students who would like to look into there's a broader range of science. That's that, fantastic. That's really why. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been incredibly informative and exciting to see where the future of these studies with with um, with gene banks is is going for the future of food. Um, really, really. Thank cool. you. It's a pleasure, Kezia. I hope you could find a good title for our talk. I'll leave it to you. Okay. <laughs> absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Great. Okay. You, you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or on the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. We also have uh, all of our episodes posted at the Foodie Pharmacology website. Um, do us a favor and go ahead and click those subscribe buttons on Apple Podcasts and on the YouTube and uh, share some, some of these favorite episodes with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.